0: Happy Independence Day! For those of you watching on stream, it probably is a blank camera. When I'm making my way there. Whoop. Aha! Good, good, good morning. It's beautiful out. It's nice and toasty. We've had a couple really beautiful days. It may surprise some of you to hear, if you don't know me very well, that I don't really care for extreme heat and humidity. Uh, we get about three great days of weather in Indiana, in my opinion. And the last couple days have been pretty good. Today looks like it's going to be a hot one, but we're still blessed. Uh, it's great to be in the uh, house of the Lord this morning. I'm honored to be able to bring you uh, another chunk of Scripture from the book of Romans. We've been making our way through here. Uh, we're going through Romans in order, um, and it has been challenging um, to, I think, uh, preach and digest. Uh, Mike is the uh, the other elder here, and he and I kind of share preaching duties, and Romans is one of those books that... Uh, you know, the more you study it and the more you work through it, it sometimes feels like maybe the less you understand in some regards. Um, and so we're going to do all this together. And it has been a wonderful time here. I always like to plug our small groups. Uh, meets at uh, 9.45, uh, basically before the service of just the 15 minutes between. Uh, and you can join that online. But what we've been doing, which has been awesome, uh, I think, is taking uh, the, the, the classes basically following a week after the sermon. So what we'll talk about today, we'll be able to discuss in depth as a group next week. And Leah does a great job of finding lots of different uh, sources and materials to try to help uh, maybe round up some of those rough edges. We know that the Word of God is in and of itself totally adequate to do everything that we need, um, but we love sharpening uh, iron as iron sharpens iron. So uh, definitely would love for you to join us. If you've got your Bible, turn with, and we're going to go ahead and read Romans 9, 1 through 29. is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into this scripture, and in some regards seems very straightforward. It doesn't mean that it's going to be simple for us to understand. It may even challenge some things that we think we knew or that we believed about who you were and who you are, who, you, who we think you were versus who you are as described in your word, Lord. Help us to set that right today. Help us to surrender our understanding to your word. Allow us to let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does, and that is to illumine this word in a new way so that we have a better understanding of who you are and what you did for us. Lord, we are eternally grateful and thankful for your mercy, for your sacrifice, for the work that you and only you did and could do so that we can spend eternity worshiping you, Lord. Thank you for this time together. It's in your son's name, I pray. Amen. Our God is a sovereign God. As Leah mentioned, um, I titled that, and it's a little on the nose for people that know our God is an awesome God, and and she picked it up right away, and it was great, because uh, this whole chunk, and and there's going to be a few few chapters like this that are going to cover this, but um, sovereignty is a slippery slope. I think a lot of people would nod their head on what it means for a a God to be sovereign. Our God is indeed sovereign, but then when we get into some of the details of what sovereignty means, it can be a little off-putting, perhaps. I didn't think about that. Um, We're going to think about that today. Because it's exactly what Paul's talking about. Uh, If you joined us before, Romans 8 ends on a pretty high note. If God is for us, who could be against us? We just talked about this in our small group, what that means, the depth of that statement. But the fundamental thing is, as believers, we know God wants good for us to glorify Him. It may not seem good to us, but we can trust in that. We know that our suffering was never in vain. We may have trouble, but God never fails. And even the Spirit intercedes when our words fail us. So if we don't know the words to say, if we don't have the way to say it, if we are connecting dots that are we just are having trouble. We're having trouble getting from A to B, we're under stress, we're under duress. We know that the Spirit is interceding for us. Romans 9 is a little bit of a shift. I say it's a shift because it doesn't necessarily follow into the kind of the joyous overture in some regards that Romans 8 was about why we do what we do. It's a little bit talking about sovereignty. It's focused at Jews primarily, but if you think about this, uh, maybe not just Jews, but just believers in general, those that would say, I am, a, I am one of God's children, I am part of God's elect, I am, I'm in. What, what does that mean when you're in? How do you know that you're in? And Paul's trying to talk about this from a sovereignty perspective. It does apply beautifully to us today, as we go through this uh, chunk today today. Do know that as we move through Romans 9, 10, and 11, they all really intermingle. Paul's trying to make a point that I think today and then was difficult. Just know that. It's a difficult thing to to, to contemplate the sovereignty of God. And we'll get into why that is. So Paul sets the stage at the beginning of this. He's asserting truth, if you couldn't tell. Uh, He's (laughs) perhaps very hyperbolic, great sorrow and unceasing anguish, but basically what he's saying is, I would give up my salvation in Christ for my Israeli brethren. HSV is my Hecox. My name's Chris Heacock. Anytime you see it, it's a Heacock Standard Version. It's my, my way of summarizing some passages. But what Paul's basically saying is, I would. If I could do it, I would give up my salvation. I care for my brothers so much. And if you know anything about Paul, he is a Bible hero if there ever was one. He stood fast in the faith. A lot of what we study today was breathed through him. I hold Paul in very high esteem. And here's a man who is willing to give up his salvation in Christ, if he could, to save his brethren, to let us know how much his heart breaks for the lost. His anguish is deep. He hurts for his brothers in Israel that don't know Jesus, won't accept Jesus, won't accept the truth of what Jesus taught. But God's word has not failed. God's word says God's people will be saved. What Paul's arguing here in all of this is that God's people aren't based on biology alone. Clearly, and Paul defers to this, prophecy-based lineage exists. We see that Christ was to come from a certain... Tr- this did happen. This was fulfilled. This is what Paul is arguing. All of the scripture pointing to, to lineage and the importance of various people begetting and begatting and all that was all about showing that God was Right and faithful and true. And Christ came from the line that he was foreordained to come from. This was all connected to a plan that God had. But it doesn't necessarily align with those that are saved. The covenant, everything we saw pointed to Christ. The first covenant was about demonstrating a need for a Savior. An inability to do that on our own. Not finding that, oh good, I'm a, I'm a Levite. Well that means I'm good to go. I'm already a priest. How could I not be saved? This would have been a real issue in Paul's church, and I would argue a real issue in today's church. I've had friends in my life whose loved ones argued with them that they couldn't be Christians because they were Catholics. Uh, What? But that's that's the mentality. You were born Catholic. You were raised in a Catholic church. You're stamped a Catholic. That's that. It's settled and done. That's today. Very, very similar idea in both occasions. But Paul, as usual, argues this point brilliantly. He's trying to debunk the notion of lineage being an ultimate governor for salvation. Ishmael came from Hagar. That was bad. Isaac came from Sarah. That was good. Now they're both from Abraham. One good, one bad. One God's plan, the other God's plan as well, but not the good God's plan. And if you think, well, that was Abraham, and he knows the arguments. He was a a mucky muck in the Jewish world. He studied the scriptures. He would made these arguments. Well, that's because of Hagar. Abraham, though, it wasn't Abraham's fault. Well, what about Jacob and Esau? They are both from Isaac and Rebecca, same parents. We didn't have the switcheroo game here. God chose, love, hate. Paul's point is lineage does not indicate mercy. It doesn't. Well, wait, but the, two, the two parents. Well, how about the same two parents? God picked one and picked the other. Good, bad, love, hate. Both from the same exact lineage. It doesn't work. It's not a good indicator. It wasn't then and it's not today. But is that injustice? Of course, and Paul, by no means. That is not injustice. And it's key because if God erred, if he made a mistake, then we have a huge problem. If it was supposed to be a lineage and God accidentally hated Esau or whoops a daisy on Ishmael, that really casts a giant shadow of doubt over all the things that we hold true. God had a plan from the beginning to show us that, yes, I am prophesying about a Savior, a Messiah. The Messiah will come as foretold, and all of his, the, the history of Israel lines up perfectly to get us to Christ. Christ is what saves us, not the history of Israel. But if you don't believe in Christ, which is who he's talking to, that's all we got is the history of Israel. We've got to depend on lineage. Paul teaches that God depends on nothing but God. He will save whom He chooses to save. He'll show mercy when He chooses to, and He'll show compassion when He chooses to. There's no prerequisite. God is not bound by anything that we might think He is bound by. This is good news, and it's fundamental to our salvation. If there's anybody here that's hearing us today and thinks that, well, my salvation is because I made a choice regardless of what God said, and I feel good about that, that's trouble. The Bible doesn't teach that. God will choose who he's going to choose to save. He's elected it. He's going to see it through to the end. But it's not about us. It's about God. It's always been about God. Sometimes (laughs) it is more than a lack of mercy. We could talk about, well, there's good and then there's not good. And then there's bad. Right? Then there's a difference, I think, between not good and bad. If you think about wartime, you had the Allies... And you had the axis, we think, of World War II. And then we had Switzerland. <laughs> Neutral. Not good, not bad. The good may have saw them as bad, and the bad may have saw them as good. But in reality, they just didn't take a side. That's what we could say. A lot of times, that's comfortable. Well, there's the saved, and there's the yet-to-be saved. Paul's addressing Pharaoh. Paul's addressing the idea that God has created and is sovereign over unrighteous vessels. Pharaoh was raised up. God didn't take advantage of a bad situation. It's not like Pharaoh got off the rails and God said, well, let's see what I can do with this. This guy's pretty far from me. I'll capitalize on his bad decisions and I'll go forward. God raised him up for God's purposes. God chose to do with Pharaoh what Pharaoh did. The Bible says that. We may not like that idea in today's world. It's hard, but this is what Paul is saying is sovereignty is complicated and costly. It's easy to say that God is sovereign when things are going great. Much harder when things are going bad. Much harder when the world's coming against us. And we want to say, well, you know, where's God now? Why have you forsaken me? And all this sort of stuff because we feel like we're not getting what we want. In this case, Pharaoh got exactly what he wanted, right? He's not an automaton, He's not being overcome and and parroted around and has no responsibility. Pharaoh chose to do the things Pharaoh did, but God raised him to do it because God had a purpose for this unrighteous vessel. Seems like perhaps Pharaoh never had a choice. Paul saw that argument coming. Here's my summary. Well, if God wills it, then how can fault be found with man? If God raised me to do unrighteous things, if I was raised up by God to do it, and then I do that which God raised me up to do, how can I be at fault? And Paul's answer is, how dare you question the will and work of Almighty God? Paul doesn't say, I'll tell you how, because Paul doesn't know it either. Paul's a man. Paul's saying, I don't question God about that, and neither should you. Trust God. He is sovereign. He is for you. We've already talked about this. Suffering, you can endure it. You can suffer well. But don't question what God chooses to do with that that he has created. Paul knows that scapegoating is inevitable. Well, let's blame God. It's God's fault. Even today, we love doing this. One that I like is God doesn't make mistakes. I feel an urge to do something or whatever. God made me this way. God doesn't make mistakes. I agree. God does not make mistakes. But he does make vessels for dishonorable use. You don't want to be a vessel for dishonorable use. If you hear this today and you're like, "Well, maybe that's me. Get back into the Word. Spend some time. We'd love to talk with you. Email address, you've heard it before, Office of Calvary Heights. You can find us on Facebook. Come. We want to talk. This isn't about sending out the, the good news and then going back into a castle and, and battening down the hatches. We are here to change the world for Christ. And the way we do it is by talking about Christ through God's word. We see here vessels are being used for dishonorable use. That's how it is. But if we could choose, we ought to choose good we, we, we proclaim this so that those who have not heard the good news hear the good news and have a change of heart. The Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. That seems, let's say, not, not nice. And I say this as in the world, um, if I were to condemn somebody to do something that the world abhors and then uh, hold them guilty for that, I made them do it, and now they're guilty for doing it. We would say, well, that doesn't seem right. That wasn't very kind to them. Why would you do it at all? Paul anticipates this argument. Now, he's already kind of shut the argument down by saying, who are you, oh man, to ask? God is God. You are man. Don't trouble yourself trying to figure out how the divine works. But he supposes here, what if God endures vessels of wrath to make his mercy even more glorious? Let me see if I can. I want to read exactly how Paul says it. He obviously says it better than I. Let me fight it here. My Bible is not, uh, not cooperating with me. What if God, this is 922, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if God uses these vessels of wrath So that we understand what that mercy means. He has created things to pour wrath into to make life troublesome. What Pharaoh, as an example, did. Made life tough for the Jews. But it made the Exodus awesome. It made the Exodus very clear that without God's help, they could not escape. They needed divine saving. All this designed to foreshadow for us where we stand. In the great calculus of salvation, I cannot save myself. The wrath due me, based on my sin, is incalculable and it cannot be overcome by me. In order to understand that, what if God endures these vessels of wrath to make that mercy that he shows me even more glorious, even more awesome? There but for the grace of God go I. Anybody ever heard that statement? I say it a lot. I do some prison ministry occasionally, or I haven't lately, but I used to do a lot of that. And uh, I resonated a lot with these folks that I talked to inside prison. You know, they made some mistakes. Maybe they had some some different decision-making principles than I did. But none of them that I talked to, at least, were absolute monsters. And they weren't, you know, uh, they didn't remind me like I was talking with the devil himself or any of that. They just seemed like average people that made really bad choices. The law caught up with them, and now they're in prison. And I listen to those people and I, their, their stories prior to prison are vastly different than mine. There but for the grace of God go on. It's a great statement only because we know that God is just and his wrath will be poured out as he desires. If God desires his wrath to be poured on me as a vessel of unrighteousness, then so be it. But if it weren't for the grace of God, that would absolutely be what happens If it weren't for Christ coming and dying on the cross and offering us the Spirit to regenerate us and lead us back to study the Word and celebrate and teach and proclaim and worship the Father to hold Him in His right place, all of us would be going there. There would be no grace of God. We would all be destined for a lifetime of eternal wrath, and we would gladly accept it because we hated God. But God sought to do this differently. There, but for the grace of God, go I. If it were not for the grace of God, for the mercy of God, I would be a vessel of wrath and getting exactly what I deserve. And, of course, Paul anticipates what comes next. Well, I guess we Jews are lucky. Now, not we Jews, but this is what he's talking about, right? Whew, lucky for us, we're Jews, right? Lucky for us, we're attending a church, and I've been going here for 20 years, so I'm in. You know, lucky for me, my dad was a preacher, that sort of thing. Paul reminds us of the very first part of this chapter. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, right in verse 24. Now this is kind of a double-edged thing here, or, or a both-and maybe, not a double-edged. But Paul's saying, by the way, just a reminder here. Being a Jew, per se, does not make you a child of God. I know we thought that for a very long time. That's how the old covenant worked. There's a new covenant here. The covenant, the old covenant was designed to fulfill the coming of Christ. Our Messiah has come. That's where our salvation lies. The rest of this has now been uh, put away. It's been fulfilled. It's been completed. uh, We like the lineage thing. That's easy to track. We've got all these documents. We've taken good care. Paul's saying, careful now. The the third bullet here is about uh, Gentiles being easy targets for vessels of wrath. Now, I think this sounds familiar, but it does. Those people. I've heard that mentioned a number of times in churches with friends, whatever else. Well, at least we're not like those people, you know. This would have been very common. When we talk about bad things, when we talk about people do wrath, people standing outside of the will of God, Christians like to huddle up and straighten our ties and say, well, you know, my, our sins are okay, but their sins, whoo-whoo, they're really bad over there. And as long as we're slightly better than them, we're probably okay. Uh, Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ Belief in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ makes you okay. Nothing else. I don't care who you associate with. I don't care how nice and eloquent you speak or how you dress or how much money you have or how healthy or wealthy or wise or whatever. Without Jesus Christ, you are in deep trouble. Deep trouble, period. Now, we don't necessarily have this idea that, well, I was born into a family that attends a church. We probably don't say that a lot in Christian churches, but we certainly act like it. And if we're not careful, we begin to emulate this without even saying it. Here's myself. Here's my family. We've been coming here for several generations. We don't like guests in the church because it's a family church. It's a, We've always been here for all the time, and we don't. And suddenly it becomes like, well, it's a, it's just a it's just a family that kind of gathers together, close knit. Really, no need for Jesus. We just hang out. We love being together. It's like a family reunion every Sunday hanging out with our buddies every Sunday. It turns into a hunting club real quick. We lose the focus and we start sounding just like the people Paul's preaching to. Well, I know I'm saved. I've come here for 25 years. I have not missed a Sunday in seven years. Fantastic. (laughs) Doesn't save you. It's a great idea to come to church. Don't get me wrong. I love seeing people here. I love being able to share the word. We should study and and, and do this. We absolutely should do this. We're, We're commanded to do it, but it doesn't save us. It doesn't save us. All this foretold. Paul's proving his point using God's word. He quotes Hosea. He quotes Isaiah. God will call whom he calls. He will call. Well, my birth is my call. Nope. Bible does not teach that. You can't be born into Christianity. You must be called. Now, well, but I thought it was all predestined. We're told. Absolutely. It is. God has elected those whom He will elect. But it's not based on lineage. And that's what Paul is arguing. There are people here that He was talking to then and people that I'm talking to now that are falsely assuming that, well, I'm in a good place. I, you know, I, my, my grandfather was a pastor, and, and, you know, I've been coming to this church for a while, and I've gone through all the stuff, and I got my baptism in the sixth grade, and I did this, and I did that, and I've done all the prescribed work. I don't really know who Jesus is, and I don't really need to, but I've done all the stuff. I punched the card. I get to show up with my laminated, saved by the church of whatever. And like, depart from me. I never knew you. And people will be shocked by this. What? I had no idea. I'd done all the work. You you never once made Jesus Lord of your life. You never confessed. You never knew. You you looked the part. You did a great job, but not good enough because your work is never going to save you. Your lineage is not going to save you. And the Bible proves it, not just here. Paul's going back and quoting Isaiah, Hosea and Isaiah, both of which, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. They were not my people. Now I call them my people. God called them. Chris Heacock was not saved in his so- freshman year of high school. Sophomore year, God called me his people. Everything changes. Did I get instantly great and never sin again? No but I was called then. That is what we're talking about. I didn't show up and go through the motions, and one day like, oh, surprise, I was saved. Like, oh, I didn't even realize. I know there are people that were raised in church and gave their life at a very young age. I baptized Emma, I think, when she was seven. We talked about it. She understood it. I'd like to think that her relationship with with Christ started at a young age because it was constant presentation. He was there from the get-go. God called her early and will never leave her. He will never leave her. She'll have tough times. She'll be in rebellion against us, her parents, and God at some point. Most likely. I pray not, but it'll likely happen. But God won't forsake her. And it's not based on the fact that she's our kid. And that we prayed for her and we got her saved. That's not true. God called her. We baptized her because we're called to do that. You confess the name of Jesus. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just as Scripture commanded. Now, Once again, as before, we depend completely on God. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but God is sovereign. He will call who he calls, and thanks be to God that he's sovereign in this. The thankfulness for us comes from the fact that no matter what I say or do, God will succeed. He can't be thwarted. Why? Because even those supposed thwarting forces, the vessels of unrighteousness, were being raised. God is sovereign over them as well. Clear as mud? Hopefully it's much clearer than that. But as before, don't, don't fret if your head is spinning. I put this in there because these are, complicated, these are complicated ideas in some regards, right? Scripture that I've mentioned before, there's a doctrine called the doctrine of perspicuity. It's a great word. That basically means that the Bible is intrinsically clear on its own. It doesn't require me or some other person that's way smarter than me or Bible study to make this clear. What we're really saying in that is that the Bible is clear to those whom the Bible will be clear to. The Holy Spirit will do everything needed. So if your head's spinning, you're like, I'm still struggling with this. is difficult. I'm 43, and I've spent 43 years confused by it, learning more about it. It's not over. I would not stand here and say, I'm telling you the absolute truth about sovereignty, and that's it, the matter's settled. Not true. It is so complex in the way that God can do all of this. And the reason is because we have no comparison to it in the world. We say things like he's a sovereign ruler. We're a sovereign nation. But if you know anything about history, nations and rulers of nations could be called sovereign until the bigger nation with bigger weapons shows up. And then pretty soon they become submissive or subservient to the new sovereign nation that's sovereign for a while. And it's because nobody on earth is sovereign. I'm certainly not sovereign over my own death. I might try really hard to be. I think we all do. We go to the doctor. We take medicine. We avoid stepping into traffic. We don't throw knives in the air and try to catch them with our face. We are sovereign over some things, but I can't stop death. I can't command it to be, stay away. What did Christ do? He actually submitted to death on the cross, then overcame it. That's what sovereignty looks like. I'm dead. I'm dead three days later. Well, I'm not dead. Boom. And what's death going to do? uh, uh, death's not sovereign anymore. That's what we're talking about here. When we talk about a sovereign God, good, bad, life, death, all these things, these things that we talked about, that Paul's talking about, God is in charge. We have people in charge of the world, but they are created. God does not have that problem. He is not created. He is the creator. He has all the omnis. Think of an omni. He's got it. He knows everything. He is everywhere. He sees all things. He's outside of time. And in complete control, absolute complete control. Our God is a sovereign God. I'm going to talk about four brief things. He is sovereign over his people. He is sovereign over his unrighteous vessels. When I first put this, I put all people. He's sovereign over all people. Implying that, you know, there's some that are his and some that aren't his. But I didn't want to make it sound like some, somebody had gotten away, right? God's over everything. So his people, the saved, the unrighteous vessels, he's sovereign over his creation, and he's sovereign over all eternity. He's sovereign over his people. If you have any question about that, here's kind of the order. The father chooses him, son gets bruised for him, the spirit renews him and produces fruit in him. There's a them there, and that's us. By the way, these are lyrics from a a song by Shai Lin called Mission Accomplished. He's like a a hip-hop theologian just unbelievably great lyrics. I love this, this breakdown. God chose, Jesus died, Spirit can renew and produce fruit. The Jesus dying second I love, because what we see is in Romans 5:8, that before while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Christ doesn't wait for my regeneration and then die. He has died and paid for everything. while I'm actively in sin. while I'm at the foot of the cross disparaging His name. I'm calling for him to crucify him, even as an elect. During my sinful time, Christ was there. What do we do here except finish the sentence? God chooses. The sun gets bruised. The sun suffers and dies. The Son justifies. The spirit renews. The spirit produces fruit. It's all God all the time. Our submission to his will comes from the spirit working in us. This should be great news, church. Now, I could tell you a few years back, this had been something I said, I don't know about that. I work hard to make good choices, and rightfully so, but they should be God choices, not just good choices. Good's easy. World emulates good all the time. Tons of charities out there giving money away, doing good deeds, helping people. I talked before about people like, I'm going to do a great deal. I'm going to give $1,000 to a homeless guy. Get the cameras rolling. And they go walking. Hey, hey, man, this is for you. All right. Make sure you get it filmed. Make sure you put it up there. Make sure the world knows how good you are. God doesn't have that problem. If we are submitting to God, if we are spending time in prayer and, and seeking God's will in our life, He'll reveal it. It may not be what we want necessarily, but He'll do it. Guarantee He will do it. Now, when we see this, na- this whole idea of getting, becoming one of God's people, it is complete dependence on God. I've said it before, it's, a, it's an age-old quote, but the only thing that I contributed to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. God does everything else. That is so comforting. There's not a step that I can skip or foul up and then disqualify myself. It's not like that. It's not a trick. It's not a shell game where you've got to pick the right one and walk a very, very narrow path or else. Yeah, the path we walk is narrow, but we're able to find it and stay on the path because of the Spirit working in us. God's sovereign over his unrighteous vessels. Quite frankly, it's God's business and not ours. There's not a lot of comforting things to say about this in some regards. We want God to make the unrighteous vessel stop Make all that end. Persecution, stop it, God. But it's God's business and not ours. And we know that it is because our commission is not to ferret out and destroy these vessels. That's something that I think we would all like to do. Let's go out and kill oppressors, right? Someone's trying to thwart the word, destroy them. Here's a nation that's anti-Christian, destroy it. That's what we'll do. Well, we're not called to do that. We're called to spread the good news of Christ. I'm not saying we don't defend ourselves adequately. That's not what I'm getting into here. But this idea that what we're going to do is crusade for Christ literally by by the sword, go out there and beat the world into salvation by defeating God's enemies on earth, when what we see is that's not the case. Their use is for God, by God. If you believe that God is sovereign, that He is sovereign over good and the quote-unquote bad that we see, the righteous and the unrighteous vessels. And because of that, we can know that even the scum of the earth still ranks well under a sovereign God. If you ever wonder how martyrs stand the test of time, how Paul can write this in prison, deal with what he dealt with, it's because of this belief. You think, you're being, you think what you've done is, uh, is, is, is set out to, to hurt me. I believe that God has done all this and sees all this happening. You think you're hurting me, but I know God's got a bigger plan. Yeah, it hurts. You're whipping me and that hurts, but God's going to do something with this that I don't understand. And because I know that God is sovereign, I can trust in that. God is sovereign over his creation, not just people. All of creation, we studied this over the last couple of weeks, groans for God's people. Creation is groaning for our day of glorification because that's when the earth gets recreated, a new heaven and a new earth. Creation wants it. Creation is tainted. There's death and destruction because of the state of the world. It's crazy to me that creation is groaning for God to redeem this place in God's time. Because of that, God's never surprised by weather and natural disasters. I use the adage of shuffling papers. Like I would be like, well, there's a hurricane. Like a hurricane? Oh, my gosh. Well, I wasn't ready for that. I haven't even got my plans together. That's not God. He knows a hurricane's coming. He has foreknown this. It's all ordained and controlled. The good and the bad. And as Christians, rather than questioning God, oh, man, who are you to question God? We need to trust that God is good. And that as horrible as we might see something to be, we know that God can and will redeem it for his glory. That's what we preach to the world. That's where the hope comes from. Life, nor death, nor height, nor depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Moreover, God uses these events even if they're painful for His glory. At the end of the day, it isn't about us feeling good about ourselves in tough times. It's about us knowing that we are here to glorify God. It's hard to accept, but the Spirit will intercede. If you've got no words, if you're hearing a message today, you're hearing this, and you're thinking, I can't... I can't connect those dots. I can't do it. I don't like suffering. I don't like seeing other people suffer. I'm going to pray for deliverance from those. Do it. Pray for deliverance. Jesus asked for the cup to pass. Now, that was a much different cup. But it's okay to pray for, for, for deliverance from things that are not good. But, but, but capstone all those prayers on the idea that, but your will be done. Lord, take the cancer from me. Give me my eyesight back. Help my knees not to hurt. But your will be done, Lord. If you choose not to let me have my eyesight back, Lord, give me opportunities to use this blindness for your glory somehow. There's a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. It's a really challenging read about a a pastor who gets cancer and decides that, just like this, I, I don't like it. I'm going to go through treatment for it. But in the meantime, I'm going to use this opportunity when everybody thinks I'm going to be down in the dumps and lose my hope, to double down on the hope and show the world that cancer doesn't stop The the, the notion of God, what God's going to do, the work and the will of God can't be thwarted by disease or death or famine or height or depth, nothing. This is the the point Paul's making. And finally, he's sovereign over all eternity. God's time, we say that, is not time at all. (laughs) We say God's timing, and that's when he's ordained things in our timeline, but God stands outside of time. He created time. He created the universe. He created everything. And he's not bound by the past or the future. And someday we will enjoy his presence. And everything that we've talked about here that might seem a little bit confusing will be made perfectly clear. We need to actually have God explain the Trinity to us adequately. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. It's a tough thing. It's very mysterious the way that that works. We have a lot of adages and they all fall short. But I can't wait for God to explain it once and for all. For now, though, we wait well. mentioned that a few sermons ago. Yes, the world will come against us, there will be suffering, but we wait well. We wait with a patience that's born of of the Holy Spirit within us, helping us to do things, interceding for us when we don't have words, trusting that a sovereign God is for us. Our God is a sovereign God. He's sovereign over all who have heard my words today, as, as anemic as they might be compared to the Word of God. It's not an accident that you're hearing this. And it's not a cosmic phenomenon or good luck. All these things we like to think about. It's God's grace that gives us even another second to share the good news. One more breath. Grace. Every time you inhale and exhale, it's grace. We're not doing it and we don't deserve it. Don't count on another second, though. There's an urgency to Paul's writing. I hope you can sense that in my tone as well. Today's a great day to stop running from God. If you find yourself in this place where... I'm struggling to trust the sovereign God. I don't, the, the sovereign God you speak of, had, there's some really bad things that happened to me and my loved ones. And I just can't abide by the fact that God would allow that. I can't explain to you why that happened. And I can't tell you that it's just magically going to be okay. But I can tell you that God will use it for his glory. If you're struck with doubt and you're tired of trying to find solutions to problems that don't ever seem to work and all the self-help things keep falling flat, I, I encourage you, I, my, my, my heart groans and breaks, as Paul's does to some degree, to trust in a sovereign God whose son has paid your debt in full. There's nothing due. There's, there's no surprise charges, you know, and you win something for free and then the tax bill comes, nothing like that. It's all taken care of. Christ has done everything necessary to have communion with God for everything. And through that communion, God's sovereignty in difficult times and difficult understanding gets better. There's peace that transcends human understanding. That's not just feeling good. That's understanding things. That's really being truly at peace, knowing that God's in control, that God will do what he said he would do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these challenging, in some regards, words. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power that it has, the power to change lives, the the power to stir hearts and and, and put the spirit in motion. And Lord, that's what you've commissioned us to do, is to tell the whole world about you, Jesus. And, And Lord, I pray that today when we talk about your sovereignty, that that is the pinnacle at your sacrifice on the cross. You were sovereign to bring Christ to this earth to live a perfect life without blemish at a specific point in history. And through that moment in time, your sovereign hand moving everything into place just as you prophesied, no surprises. Christ was able to bear the sin of the world, past, present, and future. All sin for all time paid for. Not just that, Lord. But in paying for our sin, we now claim his righteousness. And we stand before you miraculously unblemished. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to cling to that. Help us to cling to eternity in your presence when things on this earth feel unbearable. When maybe your sovereignty begins to feel like a bad thing and we can't understand how in your sovereignty this could happen or that could happen or why, Lord, Help us to lean back in and say, "We, it, it's, it's not necessarily for us to understand, but we desire to trust you more." Thank you again for this time to study. Thank you again for all the providence, and thank you again, Lord, for a nation where we are able to gather and study without fear, uh, without worry of, of somebody kicking in a door. Uh, and help us not to take that for granted, Lord. Help us to use. This providence that you have given us here in this nation, the blessings that you have bestowed upon us to further your word here and across the entire world, Lord. Thank you for this time together. In your sins, I pray.